So welcome everybody again to uh, the Dhamma talk time. The talk today is a continuation from my last talk. Um, we're focusing on anicca, dukkha, anatta, and how they're um, they're so interrelated. But I also wanted to call this talk Finding Peace Ending the War so you know that that's um, the teaching of the Buddha is ending the war one of the Actually, one of the greatest joys that I remember having was when I first started to understand what the Buddha was teaching, um, that he had such a profound way of acknowledging suffering. Uh, and, and that relief of that, just like, ah, oh, finally, someone is really um, holding that for us. And, and again, on such a poignant and profound level. And there are so many levels to uh, just understanding anicca, impermanence, whether it's just that, that subtle fleetingness of anything that appears, uh, that it doesn't even quite appear, that it's vanishing just as it appears, you know, that, that profundity of anicca or our body. You know, where we take birth, live, and pass away, or eons. You know, there's long periods of a certain kind of um, country or geology. There, there's these range, the range of impermanence is so profound. And then dukkha, uh, we talked about it already, but just to remember that it's because of this anything that appears is conditioned, it changes. Um, That experience itself is so unreliable, so undependable, um, and that that, that there's a vulnerability that we all share because of that. Suffering. And then the third, the anatta, the... um, because everything is vanishing, unreliable, that we can't control it, and that there's, there's no separate, solid, permanent self that you can find that is controlling it, um, this, and that nothing exists by itself, that it's that um, interdependent, um, codependent arising, sometimes it's called. It, there's so much in all this. Uh, uh, the point of this talk isn't to talk about each one in that kind of depth, but just to hold that you can see how they relate to each other. Recently, um, on my way back from Burma, uh, I stopped briefly in Japan, but um, witnessed in a museum a guardian lion of the Buddha, a protector of the Buddha that had never um, been shown and it will be taken out of private 
uh, out of the collection now and go, going back into a private um, home again. And you weren't allowed to take pictures of it. It was really intense because there was one of these guardian lions uh, from the Heian period in Japan very long ago when Saigyo lived um, that embodied that the sculptor must have been so um, in tune with this meaning of the guardian lion or the protector and there was this unfathomable bottomless sorrow in this being's eyes it was so moving to me I just couldn't um, I couldn't believe that somebody could depict something so beautifully and it had such an impact and I think the impact it had for me that, that I wanted to share was just how much it takes to um, become wise, to become wiser, to become more compassionate, and, and uh, what it takes, to, what we give up to, to have enough time to practice, the sorrow of that, you know, just looking at what it takes to protect your home and your practice even for two hours never mind five days just that just um, that we need the protection and that that's okay that it, that we need that protection so to understand the truth to become free to find peace to end the war does require periods of protection And often when we um, do enough practice, we start to um, get that a lot of the emphasis in the teachings is not on what is happening, but on our relationship with what's happening. And this is what will um, cultivate the equanimity, the, the deep acceptance of how things are, which is this you start to see that each moment of life is worthy of our attention, is valuable. So maybe when we start practice, sitting is more valuable to us and we, te we tend to not pay attention to anything else or walking or maybe sitting by a stream. Uh, but gradually we start to have enough energy to maybe pay attention when we're in the shower or brushing our teeth or cooking in our home, I think it's particularly um, the feedback system to what we're, we're not paying attention to when you start to slow down in your home is kind of um, startling. You know, I'll, I'll start to think, oh, I'll look at something and I'm like, wow, does that need painting? You know, I have to keep myself from doing all these projects when I'm on retreat at home because I'll start noticing all these things I haven't noticed. Uh, it's, it's really cool, actually. I like that, that I might see um, just something in the corner somewhere outside that uh, that needs a little sweeping. It's cool, actually. So, for example, this um, starting to value washing the dishes or gardening or um, harvesting um, or starting to value grief or anger or compassion 
all as worthy experiences to um, connect with. Uh, And this is where we become more safe and protected and others become more safe and protected around us as we start knowing how to have a relationship of wisdom and compassion with betrayal, then we can help somebody else with it. If we have wisdom and compassion with the experience of anger, we can help somebody else with it. So this um, acceptance of how things are. Makes life more um, accessible to us. It's like life is happening every moment without our uh, control. You know, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. It's happening and moving quickly whether we're paying attention to it or not. And a lot of our motivation initially to practice is starting to see how much we're missing. So much of life we're missing. And it's, it's, um, I'm going to go into gradually, you know, how to work with that. So I, I find that um, whether we're on retreat at home or not, we start seeing these, I call them blank places, but things where we really um, just kind of rush through it or don't even notice. Uh, and at first, again, it's kind of like, wow, how it's, it feels almost impossible to shift to the beginning, middle, end of washing the dishes. If, if that's a place you miss, or the beginning, beginning, middle, end of brushing our teeth. This is the same as the beginning, middle, end of being with a breath, or the beginning, middle, end of being with fear. And it, it just starts to open up and become more interesting. Again, the places, even the, the basic hindrances, Um, Sometimes I think people think, well, I should be over them by now. Um, But if you look at the first few days of the retreat, sleepiness, (laughs) restlessness, aversion, attachment, doubt, it's like, there they are. Uh, And it's, it's, our attention tends to be so complicated, being caught the past and the future and being so involved with the content of thinking that distilling the suffering down to, oh, it's just aversion to pain, or it's just attachment to um, pleasure, what I want, attachment to what I want, you know, aversion and fear with what we don't want. Um, There's a simplicity to that, but it takes time and protection for the attention to get that refined and interested. So mostly we have to give ourselves a lot of credit for attempting this, uh, that we do the best we can to shift from being asleep at the wheel to being awake, asleep at the wheel to being awake, you know, again and again and again. It's just, and and I don't mean necessarily the sleepiness that comes up in sitting or walking um, or eating. It's more just that sense of... um, having this intention to be as awake as we can this lifetime. 
and doing the best we can to, to know that you just put in your time each day, you do the best you can, and then you can't do anymore. And that's not personal. It's like the energy isn't there. It's just energy. You, you just lighten up and lighten up. So we've, we've mentioned um, in the last few days, Jesse and I and Darine, um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and that, that's the second foundation of mindfulness. The first foundation of mindfulness is all aspects of our bodies, uh, paying attention to, again I've mentioned it, brushing teeth, walking, standing, sitting, lying down, uh, everything that happens with our body. The second foundation of mindfulness is um, Vedana. The first, Kaya, is the Pali word for the body. The second is Vedana, the Pali word. And it means um, not emotion. It means mental feelings that are happening in the citta, the heart center, the mind itself, with each moment of consciousness. And this, this is so profound that every moment of a sight or a smell or a taste and not just that one moment of sight maybe that one moment of sight is pleasant and the next moment of seeing is unpleasant it's it's that fleeting and there's a nicha dukkha anatta right there so it's a, it's a pleasant feeling unpleasant feeling it can be a thought an emotion a sound a sight a smell a taste body sensation moment by moment, and happening very, very fast. Sometimes neutral can be the most difficult to notice. So taking responsibility for being born, for being here, for being human, means this deep motivation to understand what the Buddha said was suffering, because he said it's right here, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, are amoral, but it's when we're not noticing that something is pleasant, has passed, and then the, 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 the attention is holding on to something that isn't there. Identification is, is holding on to something that isn't happening, usually. It's like the, um, the good sitting that we call good is already gone. Like the, the pleasant sound is already gone. Sometimes we're attached to a sitting we had 30 years ago. And we don't have to judge that or hate that or feel like we have to get rid of it. It's more, again, to make space for, oh, it's just wanting. And we see if there's enough equanimity, if there's enough acceptance, that wanting will come and go by itself. But the Buddha did say that it's that sense of me and I, or mine, or yours, or ours, that sense of it's my wanting, or my fear, or um, my awareness, my foot, that is the suffering. So the, the idea of freedom here is right in this place where um, we can notice this blind knee-jerk reaction of hating or not, not wanting, of fear that 
not wanting the unpleasant to be there or wanting the pleasant to be there. And then with neutral, it would be more subtle in that this indifference to reality will start to appear or apathy or passivity because we're not able to be the attention connected with um, the neutral. Or it could be a preference for the neutral, right? That the, the intensity of pain or the intensity of pleasure, we're, we're more attached to the calm um, of the neutral. So what can be so clear when it's clear and so unclear when it's unclear is this place right here where you see the pleasant passes and that we can just let it be. We don't have to let anything go even. I mean, we often hear let it go, but actually you don't have to do anything. You can just, you know, see clearly that the aversion to pain is okay. You just shift to um, the... Jesse was describing this earlier, but the, the mindfulness, the witnessing, the attention starts to go, oh, right. It's, it's no longer some tightness in the back of the neck um, that we're trying to work with. Actually, that's several seconds ago. It was all going okay. This tightness in the neck appears. And then we, we might miss that we're not wanting it. Right, And then we don't really get that what's happening is not the pain in the neck anymore. There's this not wanting it. And that's where the Buddha said, we suffer right there. It becomes a, my not wanting it. And it's so hard to teach this. So um, the necessity for it to be that, to be clear enough uh, that, that that pain is not a problem. It's just tightness. And we often use the word pain for something that actually needs more investigation. It might be hardness or tightness, or it might be um, not wanting what's happening to be happening, right? It's like it requires often deeper investigation. We might be angry at something, but actually we're, we're going round and round in our thought process of um, blaming ourselves or blaming others when actually we haven't accepted the anger at all and we're just projecting it, blaming, versus coming to our body, to our heart center and feeling the unpleasantness of um, how often it's that we feel hurt. It, it hurts. The mind, heart actually hurts. And it's being able, again, to experience the vulnerability of that in, in relationship to the pain in this world and to let that be okay, that it's okay for the heart to hurt. And that pain in the heart will change if we, we don't try to fiddle with it and manipulate it and scapegoat, <laughs> scapegoat something to, as a way to try to get rid of it. It doesn't, it doesn't ultimately work. So, so understanding karma or kama is also right here with understanding Vedana and understanding freedom and choice. Um, 
and again, we, I don't have um, time to go into each concept that in that depth, um, but in the question and answer period, if you have any questions about this, please ask. Uh, what I'm wanting to um, really hone in on identification and um, karma or comma right now. In that, we have a choice point every, mo every moment to um, rather than hold on to something that isn't happening, whether it's uh, holding on to something pleasant that's already passed or we're holding on by pushing away pain or, or withdrawing from it with fear or, or being indifferent or bored with the neutral, um, that, that these reactions, um, if we're mindful of them, we have a choice of not being oppressed by them and imprisoned by them which is what the Buddha said was suffering. And if we act out of them, this is, the, this is what um, can create kama. It's, the, it's called the fruit, fruit of the action. And this is why motivation is emphasized so much in this practice. And it, it's good to practice with easier things so that if we um, feel hungry and we... The fruits of the motivation, and the, so that when we take action out of fear, um, I'm, I'm just going to move along. When it is fear that fears, not me or I or mine. It's not my fear. It's never my fear. It's fear that fears. But when we believe it's my fear, and we, we take an action out of fear, that creates a certain kind of kama, a fruit, fruit uh, that could manifest five years from then, or two minutes from then, or five lifetimes from then. Um, and so this is, we don't have to even believe in lifetimes, we can see it manifest in our lives um, within minutes or days or years that, that it's like a I mentioned this in a question and answer period but it's like if you have an old LP or record and the needle plays on a certain kind of groove if we keep playing out how we react to pain with a, a anger and then if we cr have certain actions particularly with our speech we can see pretty immediately the, the fruit the karmic fruit of that action out of anger. Whereas if we had paused and accepted that something was really painful, even that something somebody said to us that was painful, we accept that of course we'll probably have aversion to it and probably we'll have aversion to that person. You know, it's, it's like it happens very quickly. But if we pause, and even for me, I often go, danger, danger, danger. I, you know, I'm going to either blindly react and say something I wish I didn't say, or email something I wish I didn't say, or whatever. And, and that's the fruit of the action. That's what the Buddha said was suffering. And that's the karma, that, the samsaric wheel that we keep going on and on and on. It's that groove because we didn't pause. And we might you know, take responsibility for experiencing that aversion or anger and feel the compassion for ourselves, but also then feel the compassion for the pain we're in 
perhaps even feel compassion for that person who said something that also went through the same cycle and just dumped their anger instead of pausing. We can feel compassion for this, again, this chain of aversion to pain and stop it. That's the end of the war, but also it ends that karma. It's like we, we stop. We just stop. We pause. And of course, uh, how many fully enlightened beings do you know? Maybe not that many or none. It's like this takes, again, this kind of sometimes fierce compa- uh, protection out of compassion to take enough time to see this stuff clearly because we don't want to repeat it. We don't want to keep repeating the harm. So basically, meditation and particularly Vipassana is about freedom. It's about having choice in response to what we're taking birth into pain, pleasure, neutral. We're born into it, Vedana, pleasure, pain, neutral. And then the the human mind is conditioned to react. Of course, if something's painful, we'll want to push it away. That's, it's like it's natural, um, but we can get free with it. We can go, of course, I don't like this. Um, Can I work with not liking it? And then have a choice with how to respond to it. Sometimes we have to take a very strong action. There's, um, you know, when the fire happened in my neighborhood, you know, everybody rallied to try to stop it, right? It's like, and there were some pretty heated things that happened between firemen and homeowners. And, you know, it's just like things get a little hot. People say things they wish they didn't. um, But you get through it. You learn from it. So trying, you know, there's so much to this that, you know, so say we have a physical pain in our body and we see the attention gets called there choicelessly, it goes there. It's an intense sensation, maybe um, throbbing, tingling, um, harsh uh, sensations. And um, we want to, we're really wanting to just be there with it as it is but somehow aversion kind of sneaks in or fear and we start being motivated to stay with that, those sensations enforcing aversion will continue versus waking up and, and realizing, oh, it's okay to be limited. It's okay not to be able to be, be with this aversion to this pain. And it's better, as Jesse was instructing this morning, to shift to something neutral and he was teaching that last night. It's, it's, it's wiser, it's more compassionate, and it's wiser to shift away if we can't be with something. And that, that you know that in terms of arguments, like if you can't stop it, better to, and it, it's not going anywhere, and it's not leading to more wisdom and compassion, better to move away. Wiser, more compassionate, take a break. 
So letting things be, I think this whole concept of non-doing, not even letting go, but letting things be, and seeing that um, often things will untangle themselves. That anger will disappear. We often don't notice it, but that fear will disappear. It might come back five minutes later, but it's, it's impermanent. And that idea that it's um, my fear, I really want to get this across. What's in charge? Is mindfulness um, the one leading us, or is compassion, um, or is it shame? It's shame that's ashamed. It's not ours. None of this is ours. If it was ours, we could control it. In terms of um, the deeper level of freedom that's possible in terms of our understanding of karma or karma, Mahasi Sayadaw was a great teacher from Burma, great, fully enlightened, apparently, a great scholar, amazing scholar, great teacher, very beloved because he really opened up the practice in Burma um, to lay people as well as monks and nuns. Uh, he said that full enlightenment is no more desire for existence and no more desire for non-existence. I'll just leave you with that. No more desire for existence, no more desire for being, no more desire for non-being, no more wanting, just totally letting things be just as they are. Anatta, uncontrollability. If you think of anatta as any kind of annihilation, it's scary. Anatta, the understanding of anatta, um, brings relief, not fear. And so often we think it's the experience of annihilation, which is actually an experience of being obliterated. It's like often something is so painful, the mind itself has to disappear. It just disappears to survive. It's an amazing um, survival technique, um, but very painful and hard to come back to back from. Uh, this is not the same of a realization of anatta. Anatta often comes a realization when we see that um, maybe we notice that the breath is actually vanishing by itself. We don't have to do anything. Or we notice that sadness vanished by itself. Or we, we start to notice that when we take a step that the beginning and end of it, it's just like it's, it, the ending has to happen. It's going to happen. You, it's just you, you begin it, you begin the step, it's going to end. So there, there's so many levels to this. Um, everything that appears will vanish by itself. And so this is why we notice sounds, sights, smells, tastes, body sensations, thoughts. And thoughts are the most amazing to watch in terms of how they vanish by themselves and so quickly. And it's not like we understand anatta all day. 
but sometimes we miss the um, insight because we will have aversion to it. We often miss insight into dukkha because we'll have aversion to it. We don't necessarily like that it's vanishing by itself, but that doesn't mean it's not true, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that we can't learn to value that um, experience and insight because this is often where when we're holding on to something and we remember that it's impermanent like anger or body sensations that's painful or something about somebody that we don't like and we start thinking they're a bad person but actually it's this behavior that hopefully that person will get motivated to change so it's like this if we want to understand anatta from a place where we don't have to be afraid of it, it's, it's from this place of learning how we shift from it being my thoughts to just thoughts, simply thoughts, or my fear to simply fear. It's going from the personal to the universal. And I want to emphasize again, that's how if somebody comes in this room where I'm sitting and they're afraid, I don't have to think of it as my fear or their fear. It's simply fear. And we, we know, we can know how to connect with it, that it's an okay experience to, to drop into, to experience with interest, because we know it's going to arise and pass away. We know we don't have to believe the thoughts. And we do the best we can to, to um, if we can't do that, we shift to compassion. Uh, so I get to try to remember maybe where it um, ended, but I don't know. <laughs> so I think I'll just mention again that when you start seeing things are coming and going by themselves and uh, how quickly they're vanishing, that and such profound levels, you know, and it, it can be just maybe you notice one sound, a bird sound, disappear by itself and it's not like you make that understanding happen it just happens but it's so powerful or the breath it it just ends by itself Um, or you might reflect back and notice that fear actually disappeared by itself you didn't make it disappear however this happens um, you start to see the futility of trying to manipulate with aversion and attachment you know that's what that's that, that end of suffering. Peace comes from understanding this, and you're not annihilating anything. You're not getting rid of sounds, sights, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, emotions. You don't have to get rid of anything or get anything. Um, it's more just that that awareness that's infused with the understanding that things are just as they are. And also, I did want to touch base on this. Um, with, the, with the compassion, you know, that, that's accepting that there's um, this range of joy and sorrow in this world, and this range of pleasure and pain and neutral in the world. The compassion is, um, it's a pleasant feeling. That's how you know. When you're caring about suffering, and boy, is this a great time in the planet to practice compassion. Um, it feels good to care about pain. It just feels good, inwardly and outwardly. 
and we don't have a lot of training with it. We don't have a lot of practice with it. So often when we bring our attention to something painful, um, we either move far away from it and we find this place of distance where we're not feeling the pain, but we're indifferent. Uh, where it, looks, it can look like equanimity. It can look like a fake equanimity. It's like a pretend equanimity, but the heart isn't really connected with the pain. And when we bring the attention into pain, sometimes when we're connecting with it, we will feel grief. And we're, we can be afraid of that. It's like we have a collective grief that there's so much we need to be feeling collectively or individually as human beings. Uh, right now on the planet, there's um, a lot of grief that we share. So there's nothing wrong with grief. But if you look at it, it's often not this pleasant feeling of care that has this balance of connectedness, um, but just deeply caring about it. And it feels so wonderful to care about. If you find that you've, you've touched into pain, inwardly or outwardly, and you're feeling that wonderful feeling of care, but then suddenly it shifts to being overwhelming um, and too much, it's fine to shift away. That's what we're trying to teach. It's like, okay, time to change the channel. Whether it's like you shift your attention to something else, um, like a, a sound, or you get up and you go look at a beautiful flower, um, some, whatever, you know, I, there's a lot more to talk about with this, but um, you take the amount that you can learn from, be with, and then accept the limitation. We're human, we accept our limitation, we accept that that's not personal, there's not enough energy to be interested, and, and we learn, we learn a little bit. And that's so valuable. <laughs> Wait, there's a lot. I think I wanted to just... Um, I'm going to go a little bit over the quarter of to just touch base on a few things. One is, Jesse taught some walking meditation in the talk last night, and I just wanted to add a little more to that, which is, um, it might be that you go for walks in your neighborhood, um, and whether it's the city, the suburb, or the country, but you can do loving kindness for yourself and others, the practice as you walk. Um, but you also can take segments of time to just be aware of hearing or just be aware of seeing or just be aware of walking or your bottom of the feet touching the ground. Or you can be aware of knowing you're walking. And so there's a lot to instruct here, but I want to just encourage you that you can do the more formal, slower walking but that doesn't mean that all walking is um, not worthy of your attention and that isn't practice. It's like every time we stand up, every time we lie down, every time we walk, there's a variety of practices we can do. So if one style of practice, you know, of, of slow and maybe inside or around your house um, is enough and you want to do a more um, normal or a little slower than normal walk, uh, there's many practices you can do. 
there are, there are times when I'm outside my house and I do back and forth walking, but I might do one segment or, or a little while of hearing and a little while of um, seeing, a little while of my legs moving, like in the formal walking practice, and then the bottom of the feet. Sometimes I shift to just knowing I'm walking. And remember, in the neighborhood, when I go by a house or people, I just say, may I be happy, may you be happy, may I be happy, may you be happy. It's really um, a wonderful practice. And in terms of metta practice, There's a poem, Little Haiku, by Isa, a great um, Japanese haiku poet, who said, I'm checking to see if it's still running, he was born in 1763 in central Japan. He said, when I finally die, I hope you will tend my grave, little grasshopper. When I finally die, I hope you will tend my grave, little grasshopper. And it's so, that's so beautiful. It's, it's just like you can, again, he suffered terribly from loneliness. He, again, was one of those amazing um, monk poet types. He wasn't a monk, but he was definitely a, re- a recluse at times. And he, he found in the solitude this friendship with all beings. And he's very beloved in Japan for his poems about butterflies or snails. Or um, He suffered a lot, so many losses. And yet um, he writes about wanting this grasshopper to be with him, you know, in the grave. It, it's very important when you are having a hard time Go outside and just find something you can feel connected with. You don't have to die of the loneliness. Um, There is some being there to be connected with, even if it's for me going out to see the stars or the rain. You can send metta or feel metta or abide in metta with clouds, with trees. It doesn't have to be humans and feel that connection and care. Hmm. I'm going to end with a poem by Li Po. another great uh, poet from I think it's 700s he lived 701 to 7 he was born in 701 in China after climbing Paling Mountain in the West Hall at Kai Yuan Monastery offered to a monk beyond this world on Hang Mountain There's a sage monk on Hang Mountain, the beauty of five peaks, his true bones. Autumn moon alight in a sea of water, 
revealing his 10,000 mile heart. A guardian gone into southern darkness, pilgrims of the way all visit him there. Sweet dew sprinkling down, a language clear and cool gracing flesh and hair. Bright lake a mirror of fallen heaven, scented hall a gate into all the silver. Come for the view. I feed on kind winds, new blossoms teaching mind this vast. May we all feed on kind winds and find peace, find the new blossoms teaching our minds this fast. See you tomorrow, sweet dreams. And now it's time for chanting. Great way to go to bed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.